Welcome to Radio BX, the podcast of the Building Energy Exchange, where we discuss sustainability and energy efficiency in the built environment. This year, the theme of Radio BX is radical scale, the people, processes, and technology that will ensure our buildings meet the dramatic needs of our future. A natural extension of our core mission to foster dialogue among the entire community that impacts the performance of buildings, Radio BX is made possible through the generous support of our 2021 sponsor, National Grid. I'm your host, Yatza Frank, and I'll be talking with leaders who are driving positive change across the country and abroad. So stay engaged and join the conversation each month with some of the most compelling people in our field. Today we're joined by Donald Chabazpour, who is the Director of Regulatory Strategy for the Future of Heat at National Grid. Uh, In this role, he's leading National Grid's efforts to reduce methane emissions and to implement gas decarbonization through policy, strategy, and technology. Previously, Don was Director of Climate Change Compliance, and prior to that role, held positions focused on corporate strategy, M&A, energy procurement. Uh, Don came to National Grid from a startup focused on emerging distributed generation technology. He has a master's in public policy and administration from Columbia University's School of International and Public Affairs and a bachelor's with honors in mechanical engineering from New Jersey Institute of Technology. Donald, welcome to Radio BX. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Don, I want to start um, talk a little bit about your professional background and, and sort of how you came to focus on sustainability issues in your work. Sure. So growing up, um, I liked math and science, and I was good at it. So I thought, as a teenager, thinking that you know I like airplanes, I'm going to design airplanes, <laughs> and and um, and that's what led me to study engineering, mechanical engineering, as an undergraduate. But something happened when I was an undergraduate. I started to like classes that I hated as a kid. I started to like political science classes and history and economics. And I remember going to my advisor. I said, this is odd because I hated those classes as a kid. Why do I like them? And she's like, well, that's a transformation that does occur. And I took, um, and I had a couple of internships as an engineer. And I started to realize I really won't be happy as an engineer. So um, even though I was good in math and science, and, and then... In 1997, I did an internship. I was in Washington, D.C. for the summer, and I saw all of these people who had an MPA, and they were talking about their background. I kept thinking they had, they're saying they have an MBA. I'm like, do you have an MBA? Like, no, I have an MPA, Master's in Public Policy. I'd never heard of it because yeah. I thought I'm either you know, after engineering, I'm going to get my engineering deg- uh, and my law degree or an MBA, and I really liked the kind of work that they were doing. It was about policy. So I started to really get interested in just policy and economics, and I didn't know what I was going to do. And that led me to graduate school to study public policy. And from there, I was thinking a lot about, like, what would I want to do in my life? Having a technical background, I like science, and I like technology, and I like policy. What has all of those? And it was just, you know, by luck, people were starting to talk about climate change and the energy industry. And sort of the more I dug in, the more interesting it became, and it was fascinating. And I had an engineering background, and people tell me now that, wow, you must have designed your career to do this exactly. I was like, no, I, it wasn't designed. It was sort of, you know, by luck, one thing led to the next. And that's how I really got into the energy industry. And from there, I was really fascinated with the energy industry. I started to learn about the energy industry, you know, about the various positions that you just described. 
And I remember at that, you know, more than 10 years ago, my mentor said, so what do you want to do when you grow up? And I said, I really want to focus on sustainability and climate change. And that's how, it, you know, one position led to the next, the ones that you just described. I ended up in, you know, really being passionate about this, but it didn't start out that way. I really didn't know what I wanted to do, you know, until one of these positions led to the next. Yeah. What's the focus of the future of heat team at National Grid? Yeah. So just to step back and provide the proper context, we as a company have committed to a net zero by 2050. And this net zero, it's not, we had a previous net zero, but that was company's own emission. But about a year ago, we, our new commitment to net zero is, it includes our customers' emissions, which is on a scope three. So we, in other words, the, when you use natural gas for your home and electricity, we are also picking up those emissions as well, which makes it much, much more ambitious, right? So that's the context, which is, by the way, aligned with our states, right? New York, Massachusetts that we operate in, and it's also aligned, um, you know, with a lot of the, right now, the federal policy and the stakeholders that wanting to move to that. So that's the context. And then we developed the sort of, 10 pillars, how you get to net zero. So on the electric side, I wouldn't say it's easy, but at least you know what the roadmap, at least in principle, looks like, right? right. It's solar and wind and storage. It's now about really sure. scaling it. Like, how do you build and construct those things? And then there's energy efficiency. That's almost like, um, you know, the no regret. You must do a lot of energy efficiency. We also know what the pathway in principle looks like for transportation, especially light UD vehicles. Within all of these different sort of layers of decarbonization, the thorniest one is the buildings, right, the thermal sector. So that's what really the group, our group, focuses on the future of heat. How do you address the thorniest really challenge for us, which is the thermal load, which is mostly here in New York City when you think about that, it. it's just buildings, but it's also beyond buildings. So if you think about wherever you use high temperature, so if you have industrial customers, you know, that melt steel, aluminum manufacturing, and that's really what our group is really focusing on. And, and this is, by the way, the really early stages. It's when you think about decarbonization of heat, it's where solar and wind were, you know, about the 1990s. Right. And is a lot of that focus on renewable natural gas? Is that a, a big piece of the work? So, great question. For us, it is. And that's something that's most people have never heard of. Yeah. Um, yeah. And when you do think about decarbonizing heat, and this is where the nuance comes in, it's not one solution, right? Um, there are people who really push back against renewable gas, and they would say, well, our default position. Or if you ask them what's the strategy to decarbonize heat, they would say, well, you just electrify, right? And, and I want to be clear, electrification is part of the answer, but not full electrification. So it's not binary, meaning it's electrification or renewable natural gas. We will need both and all of them, and it will probably still fall short, and we'll still probably need more really innovative technologies like carbon capture as well. Yeah, yeah. I think probably a lot of people, um, a lot of our audience are probably unfamiliar with the whole concept of renewable natural gas. So it'd be like what, it'd be great if you could describe like what it actually is and what the primary sources of it, of RNG are. Yeah. And, and I'm, this is something that the majority of the people, you know, unless you're an expert in the energy industry, you probably have never heard of it. So the definition 10 years ago was simple and it has evolved. So let me give you 
10 years ago, renewable natural gas had a simple definition, pipeline quality gas derived from biomass. Right. Today, that has evolved into really three components. It's pipeline quality gas that is derived from biomass or other renewable sources, and it has lower emissions than geological gas. Mm. What has changed over the last 10 years is really the introduction, when I say other renewable sources, is the introduction of hydrogen and how people are mm. thinking about hydrogen, how you can use renewable electricity to produce hydrogen. Today, when people are saying renewable natural gas in the projects today, and there are about 120 renewable natural gas projects operating in the United States today, they're all biogenic sources. They're primarily landfill, wastewater treatment plants, livestock manure, and food waste. And they're using a technology known as anaerobic digestion. It's been around forever. It's been around for a long yeah. time. Yeah. Landfill gas, people call it in the 50s and the 60s. It was used to generate power. And really the distinction between biogas, people are, well, what's the difference? Biogas is a technical term for a gas that's 60% methane. Renewable natural gas, when I say pipeline quality gas, it's primarily methane. So you clean up biogas from 60% methane to about 95, 98% methane, that becomes renewable natural gas. Gotcha. And how is it captured at sources like farms and treatment plants and landfills? Like, what, what's the system that is in place to capture this, this, uh, this gas there? Yeah, so the term anaerobic digestion is where these organic matters break down in the absence of oxygen. Landfills are usually capped, and then they put wells in them, and they mm -hmm. capture the biogas. Yeah. Wastewater treatment plants, all of the major cities have these digesters as well. So there's New York City, right? And Newtown Creek, we'll talk about that. New York City's largest wastewater treatment plant. They already do this. Yeah. What they have done historically, a lot of wastewater treatment plants from the country, some of them have flared the biogas. Some of them have used it for their own boilers. And right. a lot of them used to use it to generate power. Right. What's happening today in the dairy industry and the food waste they're also building digesters, which are you know, essentially big tanks, yeah. right? And they are capturing those feedstocks and putting them in. In the U.S., it's somewhat new, but if you go around you know, places like Germany and Europe, you know, I think you know, Germany has like 12,000 digesters. They've been around for a long time, places like Sweden. And I am, by the way, now focusing on these technologies that use anaerobic digestion. These are high-moisture feedstocks, but there's also another technology known as gasification, where you use lower moisture feedstock to produce renewable natural gas. Mm. And that's where feedstocks like municipal solid waste, right. wood waste, dead, tr dead trees, energy crops. Gasification is a proven technology. It is commercially available, but it's not at scale yet. So yeah. you don't see yeah. people building gasification yeah. plants to produce renewable natural gas because it's so expensive. Yeah. But those prices will come down to the future like all the other technologies, and it will eventually be part of the solution as well. Yeah. But currently, all of these projects are using anaerobic digestions yeah. and the feedstocks yeah. that I just mentioned, the four primary feedstocks. It's interesting. I just uh, read recently about a, um, a project in Vermont that, that opened, which seemed like a pretty large-scale um, capture of, of methane from, from, uh, from livestock. Um, and it's, so it'll be, really, it'll be interesting to see these getting kind of implemented um, over time. So there's a little bit of a difference uh, between like non-fossil and low-carbon natural gas, um, but in essence you're still burning methane, right? So how, how does that help lower the carbon emissions? 
Yeah, I get asked that question often a lot, and it's a really good question. When you use natural gas, you know, geological gas, you dug up that methane, right? It was yeah. sequestered underneath the ground for billions of years, and you dug it up, and you combusted it, and that means you added new emissions, right? That's a new source of CO2 that was originally beneath the ground, and now it's up into the atmosphere. Got it. When you use renewable natural gas, right, if you combust a decathem or a thousand cubic feet, you still put the same amount of methane, but here's the difference. It's not a new source. Hmm. So when you trace them all back, you're essentially recycling the gas in the atmosphere, the CO2, and if you trace it back far enough, you go to photosynthesis, and that's the difference, right? That's why people have asked me, what I combust Renewable natural gas, how is that reducing emissions? Because you did not introduce new source of CO2. You are recycling it. Yeah. And by the way, if you look at, you know, this gets really complicated, um, how you use greenhouse gas accounting, which framework, that could be a whole other podcast, what states do. But there are some life, some some, um, feedstocks are actually negative. Like if you use California's, how they do, you know, full life cycle analysis, for um, under their um, low carbon fuel standards, like dairy is negative, wow. right? It's negative because you're also doing these avoided methane emissions. Same thing with you know food waste, and then there. So there's all of these also carbon intensity scores that you can apply, where the carbon footprint, if you really do your you know life cycle analysis, they're not exactly the same. So yeah. the feedstock yeah. does make a difference. But to answer your main question is. At the end of the day, you are not adding new CO2 into right. the atmosphere. And does RNG typically require like a different type of infrastructure than the, the sort of fossil gas that we're used to using in, in buildings? Once it's pipeline quality, it's indistinguishable from natural gotcha. gas, it's methane. However, what's different is before you get there, Yeah. right? So as I mentioned, all of these feedstocks produce biogas, gas that's 60% methane, 40% CO2, right? That's not pipeline quality. No utility would allow you to inject that gas. So the infrastructure that's going in today to make it pipeline quality is these purification facilities. So you have to clean the gas up. So you remove the CO2, you remove the moisture, and then you odorize the gas. And that's the difference and that's what you see all of these projects around the country, that they're working with utilities, us as well. We are taking these biogenic sources. People just refer to them. We clean them up, and then we bring out to the pipeline quality standards, and then yeah. we inject them into the utility, yeah, yeah. utilities infrastructure. And as this becomes, is scaled up, the availability of RNG, I mean, I understand that most of its application is going to be displacing like fossil gas that's used in buildings for heating and, and, and you know, cooking and things like that. Um, but could it also act in a, in a, when we have a grid that's more dominated by electrical and wind intermittent sources, can it also act almost like a battery? Um, and, or maybe that's just means, you know, pumping RNG to, to peaker plants or it, it can help there or is the, is the scale there that's like too great to, for the, to, to feed into that? So one of the compelling reasons that you want to utilize in renewable natural gas, the way I see how you get to 2050 is you need to decarbonize both networks at the same time, electricity right. and gas. The average person is very familiar how you decarbonize the electricity network, right? They've seen, they see commercials all day on solar and wind, they get that. 
This part of the story is untold, and it's really not widely understood that you can also decarbonize the molecules. And one of the reasons you do it is to have this integrated and complementary energy system. Right? If you think about what's the biggest weakness of solar and wind is that they are uh, intermittent. Yeah. Right? If you think about these feedstocks, they are not intermittent. So a landfill and a wastewater treatment plant can basically produce RNG in a steady state, right, 24-7. So that gets it in, into how you can make the grid a lot more reliable and resilient. So it will, it will be able to use for multiple uses, what you just mentioned. It will go primarily into the buildings in places like New York City, Boston, high density, but it can also be utilized to produce power. Interestingly enough, though, today RNG is not being used for heating sector. It is primarily going mm. to transportation sector. Hmm. And the reason that's happening is, you know, you know how I just mentioned a couple of minutes ago that there are about 120 plants operational today? Yeah. Ten years ago, it was a handful. It was a handful, literally like two or three projects were operational wow. in 2010. We've gone from basically zero to 120 because of the policy framework that started under EPA's RFS program, renewable fuel standards. Right. And then California created you know, their own low carbon fuel standards. So the incentives went towards transportation sector. And you've had this boom, hmm. you know, going again from zero to over 120 in a decade, and then you have another 100 right now in construction or development across the country because of that, inf that incentive. I think over time, every state is starting to realize you need to have that similar in some sort of incentive or policy framework to use RNG for buildings. I'm very confident that will happen because yeah. without that, the RNG will not come to the building sector because it's a lot more expensive than your you know, geological natural gas, which is very cheap today. Yep. Then you get to this question, and now you're at asking, you know, what's the potential look like? There have been technical studies. Uh, we did one as, as an industry, uh, as part of the American Gas Foundation study, and it's available on AGF's website. And it's pretty substantial, right? There's, it goes by feedstock, by state. Um, but you do need this policy framework together. So one of the questions I usually get, well, why isn't that happening? Right? And my response is, you will never know how much potential there really is until you put your support behind it. So we need right. that policy support behind this. And this is actually a very similar argument I heard 20 years ago. Right When I came out of grad school, people were saying, well, solar and wind are nice, but they'll never be big enough. <laughs> right? I remember that conversation yeah. vividly when I came out of school. It Absolutely. seemed like yesterday. Yeah. And then what has happened? Right, RPS happened. You put the full policy support behind them, and then it begins to take off. So it's really a similar thing. Yeah. Bringing things kind of uh, close to home, uh, you were a primary author of the recent report, Pathways to Carbon Neutral NYC. wondering if you can kind of summarize the key findings of that report from your perspective. So this was a study um, done with National Grid, Mayor's Office of Sustainability, and Con Edison. We had a pretty pretty robust consulting team uh, helping us. It was uh, ICF. Uh, they did all the modeling, energy futures initiatives, Drexel University. The study looks at every sector. So it's not just, the, you know, um, how does, it, it does look at specific New York City. How does New York City achieve um, net zero or at least 80% reduction by 2050? And we looked at pathways. So this was a really a technical assessment doing our homework. And I feel like we could do another podcast just <laughs> focusing on that study because yeah. it does, what's really impressive about that study, it took two years to do, 
we got into the weeds, right? In a nutshell, just to synthesize this, we looked at three pathways. One was electrification, was, was low carbon fuels, and one was diversified, which was the combination of the two. If I would have to synthesize it and just distill the study, I would say is it can be done. You do need everything. And everything means you need a lot of solar, wind, batteries, low carbon fuels, RNG, um, hydrogen, and you'll still fall short. Yeah. And the study also confirmed that when you, when you, you do need all of them, you need them now, and you'll still fall short, right? This is sort of the daunting part of like addressing climate change, how difficult right. it is. Right. And, you know, I'm probably guilty of this as well because I focus on low-carbon fuels and RNG. We tend to like our technology and people push their technology. And you see people that like storage, people that love, you know, heat pumps, people that love, you know, I'm more, I guess, could put me in camp. And then you realize you can push your technology. And what this study says is that you really need all of them. Right. And then how you sequence it, looking at it from a temporal element, becomes complicated. And then we just did our technical homework, Right. This was just showing you a pathway in absent of all the policy and the regulation that needs to take place to make that happen. Right. That's sort of a very short version of the study, yep. Yep. but I hope people go look at it because it is really the first of its kind that gets into this level of detail and specifically focusing on New York City. Yeah. I mean, turning a little bit to buildings, um, there's few things that have as much impact on heating demand as the envelope of the building. Does the report get into focusing at that level, like sort of recommending that more buildings upgrade their envelopes, or is it more on the supply side of the, of the question? No, it gets into energy efficiency. I mean, yeah. so we broke energy efficiency into three tiers. It was tier one, tier two, and recladding, right? So tier one, right. it's sort of, you know, the lighting, and then tier two is more sort of aggressive, replacing windows, and then um, tier three, like, as I mentioned, reclining. Yeah. We have a nice round number of buildings in New York City, about a million buildings, and all the pathways, eight, 80% of the buildings go through some sort of energy efficiency measure. Right. So that's a very big number. So that's <laughs> almost like the foundation. Like EE is given, and it must happen. Yeah. And then, of course, it depends. It is a function of typology, right? How old is your building? Is it a multifamily? Was it built pre-war, post-war? Is it eight stories? So actually, the, the study does get into some level of detail into that. Yeah. But energy efficiency across all of the pathways is something that, like I, I would probably say, it's, it's the no regret. You have to do that yeah. as just as foundational. Yeah. Is National Grid currently offering incentives for building envelope upgrades? Yes. Yeah. We, I know we have some of the most aggressive energy efficiency incentives. Um, that's not sort of my area of expertise. Sure, I have colleagues sure. that just run the energy efficiency, yeah, so I'm not yeah. very familiar with them. Yeah. But I do know that energy efficiency and incentives and the programs in all the states, New York, Massachusetts, Rhode Island, yeah. it's something that we offer. And the Northeast, you know, is a leader in the space nationally in, ter- in terms of, you know, all of our states that we operate yeah, in definitely. and providing the most aggressive energy efficiency incentives. So what's next uh, for the future of Heat Group at, at National Grid? First piece is telling the story that I just told you. Um, there are people listening to this, or, and when the New York City study came out, that are really in opposition of these low-carbon fuels, mm-hmm. um, especially when you talk about hydrogen 
and I, maybe very quickly, let me just talk about hydrogen. Yeah, yeah, please. And the study highlights this as well. We talked a lot about RNG from biogenic sources. We are laying the foundation for hydrogen, but by 2030s, I think it will become a pretty important part of our decarbonization story. And the source of the hydrogen, at least for New York, and in the study we talk about it, is what we call green hydrogen, which means we take renewable energy, solar and wind, and when it's curtailed or there's excess supply, we split water through electrolysis, mm. and we use that um, as a low-carbon fuel. And you will see a lot of these days, you can almost, like, there's a hydrogen article almost coming up on a daily basis. Right. Because what's really unique about hydrogen is that it sits between electricity and gas, and it also can decarbonize multiple sectors. So you will see people in the marine transportation talking about hydrogen, people in aviation, people that want to st- you know, melt steel and aluminum, very high temperatures. Mm. So that's what's really um, unique about hydrogen. But I do also want to study expectation. It's not going to be happening today. Yeah. So now let me answer you a question about what you, what's the future of heat, you know, we're doing. One, we want to start laying that foundation for hydrogen, which means do the studies. And now there's multiple efforts. There's some happening at the company level, all the way up to the Department of Energy, working with all of the national laboratories to actually do the science and the technical work, how you integrate hydrogen. The next step, we want to be able to do demonstrate these technologies. So we will do demos, how you actually integrate hydrogen. There are a lot of technical questions that you need to answer. How much hydrogen can you blend? What impact does it have on your infrastructure, pipes, customers' appliances? And then there's also the policy construct, like how do you develop the policy framework that includes legislation and regulation to integrate as part of this? So that's sort of the future. Yeah. This will take a lot of work because anytime you talk about legislation, that's a heavy lift. Regulation takes years. Demos take years. Um, And then scaling renewable natural gas, bringing that into the thermal sector, right? As I mentioned, all of the RNG projects today are going, primarily all of them, the overwhelming majority are going towards the transportation sector. The heating sector can actually dwarf the transportation sector. So then you need to start bringing this RNG into the heating sector in places like New York City. Right. So all of that is sort of the, you know, the work ahead. And the last thing I'll say about hydrogen, because people always ask, and I feel like you're going to ask me next, like, is hydrogen doable? And the answer is, the short answer is yes, right? The transformation that's taking place today in the gas, and I've talked to engineers that were around in 1950s and 60s that were like, this seems very familiar, right? With the advent of gas that started coming from the Gulf where we were transitioning from coal, right? We have manufactured right. gas right, plants. Right. Yeah. And when I talk to my colleagues in the UK, because they're ahead of us and other people in Europe that have identified all of these technical issues, none of them are showstoppers. They were mm. like, we will be able to do this. Um, just like the way, like I said, we did this 50, 60 years ago, transitioning from coal to the advent of natural gas. Um, so a lot of work ahead, yeah. just on the thermal sector, yeah. and then integrating them, again, with electrification, the heat pumps. Um, you know, Obviously, that's the primary when people talk about electrification, air source heat pumps. But then there will also be geothermal as part of the solution. Sure. Putting all of that portfolio together is at least the work ahead for our group and, you know, my counterparts and other utilities and the policymakers to decarbonize heating sector. Yeah. That's great. So looking ahead, like who or what is inspiring you these days in, in your work? 
when you spend all your time thinking about climate change, it can sometimes be depressing, right? Because people are like, how are you going to get all this done? You read articles that are depressing. You've seen them all in the press. And we have hired, I've hired myself and my other colleagues in other departments, we have hired some new analysts that come out of grad school. Yeah. And it seems like a cliche, but they are amazing. Yeah. <laughs> they are so sharp. And, you know, 20 years ago when I came out of school, there were no concentration focusing on climate change, environmental science. Today they do, right? Today universities have environmental science, climate. So they come out of grad school knowing what took me 10 years to know, and they're like 23 years old. Yeah. <laughs> and they are sharp, and they are amazing. I mean, seriously, when I, when I work with some of my colleagues that are like in their early 20s or mid-20s, like I said, they come out of school and how sharp they are, and I sort of look at them, I'm like, oh, we're going to solve this, really. I look yeah. at them, and I'm like, addressing climate change is not going to be an issue if these people are in charge. And, they, you know, there are all these different disciplines, right? Economists, engineers, yeah. we hired policy people. They are just really incredible. That's great. Great. Don, this has been great. I've learned a lot myself, and I'm sure our audience will as well. And I really, really appreciate your time today. Thank you so much. Thank you. It was a pleasure being here. Yeah.